as a, as a Christian, there are four things, four sins, four wrong practices that threaten our discipleship and our witness. And without self-discipline and self-control, they could cause our downfall. And I'll come back to what those four things are a little later on. If you were here last week, uh, we looked at the first 23 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we, we talked about these three buzzwords, rights, responsibilities, and freedom, and how as Christians, we may have to surrender certain rights for the sake of others. That we do have to accept specific responsibilities for the sake of others. And we also have to use our freedom for the sake of others. And this morning, we're going to pick up the reading again in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which is page 1150 in the Red Pew Bibles. But the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow are due to start in less than two weeks. And once again, we're going to watch some amazing athletes in action who have put in a lot of work, a lot of training, a lot of self-discipline, a lot of self-control in order to be there and to compete. And these kind of games have, as you probably know, they've been around for centuries. And in Paul's day, approximately 2,000 years ago, the Isthmian Games were held near Corinth every two years. And so as Paul continues to speak about rights and responsibilities and freedom, and particularly regarding how Christians behave, he refers to the athletics track and to the boxing ring in order to back up his teaching. So let's stand and hear what he's got to say. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 9, starting at 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last, that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Grab a seat. For now, we're going to be up again. So just prepare yourself for that. Paul, uh, now I know we could kind of spend ages just in those few verses, but, but I want to keep this moving. Paul makes the point that anyone who enters these games doesn't just rack up and take part without any preparation. They go into kind of strict training because they know that that's what it's going to take if they're going to stand a chance. Gotta, you've got to train. If you've got to stand the chance at these games, you've got to train. Plus, you don't have athletes entering these games who are going to run around aimlessly. Or boxers who step into the ring and start shadow boxing 
because we all know what's going to happen in both cases. Runners are never going to get anywhere or else they're going to veer off track. And boxers who beat the air are going to be lying on their backs in no time, having had their legs punched out. But here's, here's the big idea for Paul. Because it seems he is speaking directly to himself in these verses. So you'll notice there's a lot of I in here. So, so he, he is talking to himself. But there's no doubt he's also speaking to the Corinthian Christians and to us as well. Here's the big idea for Paul. To live the Christian life, or to run this race that is marked out for us, or to fight the good fight, to grab similar kind of language that's elsewhere in the New Testament. To live the Christian life, you must exercise self-discipline and self-control. That's the big idea for this morning, if you like. That's the one phrase I just want you to take away. To live the Christian life, you must exercise self-discipline, self-control, or you're beat. The Corinthian Christians, or at least some of them, were behaving in, in certain ways that needed to be challenged, as chapters 5, 6, and 7 reveal, which I know we're going to come back to. But here were a group of Christians that were playing fast and loose with Christian morals. Their attitudes and their actions were suspect, to say the least. But there was a sense in which they were justifying their behavior on the basis of freedom and rights. And so as Paul tries to get them to take a step back and think for a minute before they cause untold damage, not only to their own faith, but also to the faith of lots of people around them. But as he tries to get them to take a step back and think, he takes and he uses ideas and images from games or from events that he knows they're really familiar with. And he stresses how the gospel does demand that you have to give up some of your rights and some of your freedom, even if it feels like you're going into hard athletic training. And so he says in verse 27, and here's in the, the New Living Translation, I discipline my body like an athlete training it to do what it should. You see, without self-discipline and self-control, Paul knew he would mess up. He knew he was going to take his eyes off the prize. That he was going to do certain things. He was going to get caught up in certain things. And he would lose the plot. And if they're not careful, this is what he's saying. And if we're not careful, it could happen to you. I said there is a sense in which Paul is speaking directly to himself. And, and, and so he finishes this little section with a very strong personal comment. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, get this bit, I myself might be disqualified. See, moral failure could rule Paul out from receiving the prize. Now, don't get too hung up on or distracted by the possibility that this might mean that a Christian can lose their salvation. I'm not going there this morning. But some people think that that's what this sounds like, but, but don't get caught up with that. Don't get distracted by that thought. Paul's words here are meant to act as a severe challenge to Christian readers in Corinth and in Belfast 
to take spiritual discipline and spiritual training seriously. That's why he's writing this. Paul does not want himself or his churches to end up like people in a boxing ring simply waving their arms around. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. How's, how's your training going? How's it, how's it going? How's the self-control, the self-discipline? What are you doing to kind of stay on track, to keep competing? What are you doing to guard your heart, to stay focused? Or are you drifting along? Is there a chance you could be running around aimlessly, shadow boxing, and entertaining thoughts and actions that need to be challenged. And as Paul continues writing, he then speaks directly into the lives of the Corinthian Christian. Now, he's been kind of talking to himself in those few verses, indirectly talking to the Corinthian Christians, but, but now he kind of focuses on them. And he does this at this point in this letter because he doesn't want to see history repeating itself. History's a habit of doing that. And so he offers some severe warnings to these Christians based on the experiences of the Israelites in the wilderness. Their ancestors. Our ancestors. And so, let's stand again for the next stage. So he continues. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Grab a seat again. We could spend ages there. But what Paul does here is fascinating. He rewinds their story to make the point that, listen, church at Corinth, you're in a very similar position now as your predecessors were at the time of the Exodus. 
And what happened to the Israelites stands as a stark warning to you. And the question is, are you listening? Are we listening? Paul draws attention to four key elements from the Exodus story. So there's the cloud he refers to. That's the cloud, the pillar of cloud that guided the Israelites. He refers to the sea, clearly the Red Sea, the place of their rescue and deliverance. The food, the manna that was provided by God on a daily basis. And he also refers to the water, the thirst-quenching H2O that gushed from the rock. Now, without going into lots of detail, and the Corinthian Christians would have got this immediately, but the cloud and the sea spoke of, of the presence of the living God, which led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt towards the Red Sea, where the waters parted to let them walk through on dry land, and then it closed over the Egyptians who were chasing them. God led them from slavery to freedom. That was their story. Which is exactly what he has done in the lives of these Corinthian Christians. And so just as the Israelites, and look at verse 2, were baptized as followers of Moses in the cloud and in the sea, the Corinthian Christians would have recognized that Paul has drawn parallels with their baptism as followers of Jesus and their journey from slavery to freedom because of Jesus. So if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul has talked about how Christ is their Passover lamb. Remember, this is part of their backstory. Christ is their Passover lamb who was sacrificed for them. And so all of this, all of these images would have resonated. They are, as we are, true Passover people. True Exodus people who've been rescued from slavery to sin. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of the cross. And so as they listened to Paul writing, they would have been making these connections. Their story our story. And then these other two elements, Paul talks, you have heard how the Israelites ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual water. Now, it's important we, we don't think, well, hold on a minute, if, if he says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual water, th does that mean they weren't real? Well, of course they were. They were watered, they were fed, but what it does actually mean is that they were provided by God through his spirit. They didn't happen naturally. Manna doesn't just appear overnight. Water doesn't magically, or rocks don't magically become drinking fountains. And as the Corinthian Christians read what Paul was saying here, they would have had no difficulty again in drawing the parallels between the provision of that special food and drink for the Israelites on their journey towards their inheritance and God's provision to the Corinthian Christians of the food and the drink of the special meal that they would have celebrated together on a regular basis, the Lord's table, communion, the Eucharist. So the Corinthian Christians were making all these connections. 
This is our story back then. This is our story now. All the Israelites have had the same experience as you Corinthian Christians. New covenant, new day, new exodus. Then Paul drops the bombshell. Verse 5. But God was displeased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Because we all know the story of the Israelites is pretty tragic. There were problems. And although they got to within touching distance of the promised land, their disobedience and their unbelief led to a lot of wandering and condemned a whole generation to die out before they actually crossed the Jordan. All came out of Egypt. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, entered Canaan. The rest perished in the desert. And what Paul is getting at in this fascinating link between then and now, between the present believers in Corinth and in Belfast, and the past Israelites in the wilderness is just this. They, these Corinthian Christians, they must not presume or think that the benefits of God's presence and his rescue of Christian baptism or the Lord's Supper will help them if they decide to do their own thing and live morally disobedient, compromised lives. That's a strong teaching here. I recognize that, especially for the 13th of July in summer. Paul's saying, listen, don't, don't somehow think you've automatically reached a level that requires you don't need any further moral restraint or effort. That you don't need self-discipline and self-control. Don't, don't think you've got to that point. And Paul's anxious that if they're not careful, they're going to lose it. Yes, you can, you can bang on about rights and freedom, but if you forget your responsibilities, you're going to slide back or you're going to backslide into paganism. And as he highlights this risk, he, he identifies these four deadly sins. Four wrong practices from the wilderness years. And he says, do you know something? These act as a warning to you and to us. And if we're not self-controlled, and if we're not self-disciplined like an athlete, then we'll probably end up repeating these mistakes. And so here are the four to avoid. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord and whinging, complaining. Let me briefly, and I mean really briefly, look at each one. First one, idolatry. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is a direct reference to the, the golden calf incident, Exodus 32. Whenever Moses tracks back, back down the mountain and finds the Israelites are offering burnt and peace or they're sacrificing burnt and peace offerings to an idol which, which they've made out of their melted jewelry their melted down jewelry and so Paul challenges the, the Corinthian Christians re regarding idolatry because they're in danger of, of worshipping other gods 
Now, now not melted down jewellery gods. But they're in danger of, of putting something or someone in God's rightful place in their lives. Someone, something stealing their affection. Something, someone who is disabling them from loving God with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. And without self-control and without self-discipline in this area, it's going to create problems for them. And it's going to create problems for us as well. And idolatry remains a live 21st century issue. We've got to be careful who or what occupies the prominent place in our lives. Who or what occupies the prominent place in our lives steals our affection. The next deadly sin is, is sexual immorality. Verse 8. And in here, Paul refers to an incident that happened on the plains of Moab. Numbers 25. I'm, I'm not going to go into any detail. It would not be helpful. It would not be appropriate what took place there. But as Paul refers to what did take place there, He challenges the Corinthian Christians because sexual immorality is a massive problem here. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 again reveal that. And without self-discipline and without self-control, and those who were here last Sunday night as we looked at that segment of the fruit, without self-discipline and without self-control, sexual immorality is a very clear and present danger. It still is today. And the third deadly sin is testing the Lord. And here, Paul refers to an incident in Numbers 21. Whenever the Israelites doubted God's capacity to provide for them, in spite of his repeated signs of love and power. It seems that the Corinthian Christians were, were kind of complaining against Christ in some way that had placed their relationship with him under severe strain. And so Paul says, listen, we, we should not test Christ. That's what, that's what we read. And I wonder, do we, ever, do we ever do that? Do we ever get impatient with God? Do we question what God's up to? Do we doubt that God is under control? Do we test God? That's what these Corinthian Christians were doing. And then finally, the deadly sin of complaining. And, and as we all know, because we've, we've looked at this story, but the Israelites were experts in this. They'd had enough practice. They often complained about their service. Time and time again, they said, Moses, why did, we, why did you not just leave us back in Egypt? It was better there. And we don't like your leadership, and we don't like the way you're doing things. And that's the way it went on and on for years and years. And it seems here in Corinth that some of the Corinthian Christians were complaining against Paul, complaining to Paul in a similar fashion. And what I want us to do is, is, is look at this, this verse, verse 11. After Paul talks about all these things, is, is listen, these things happen to them as examples and are written down as a warning for us. And so you've got to engage with your backstory. You've got to understand who you are, where you've come from. You've got to understand that this could become your story. If you're not careful. And if you look at each of these sins, there's actually a really sobering dimension to them that Paul mentions. As he refers to the grumblers, he reminds the Corinthian Christians that many of the Israelites were killed as a result by the destroying angel because they complained. 
And as he refers to those who tested the Lord, you'll notice he says, many were bitten by snakes and died. And as he refers to the sexually immoral, he recalls, and we just read it, how 23,000 people died in one day as a result. And although he refers to idolatry, he doesn't mention what actually happened in Exodus 32, but the Corinthian Christians would have known that story. How on that day, the Levites ended up chasing their fellow Israelites and killing 3,000 of them. Extreme consequences followed these four deadly sins. And Paul here is pleading with the Corinthian Christians, don't make the same mistakes. And so he writes these familiar words. So, if you think you're standing firm, and they did, their rights and their freedom, do what I like. If you think you're standing firm, says Paul, be careful, lest you fall. As Tom Wright writes, as the old age and the new, the old covenant and the new grind against one another like two tectonic plates, those who think they are standing firm one minute may find a moral earthquake happening all around them. And if they're not careful, they will end up flat in their faces. Do you know, there's no room for pride in the Christian life. These deadly sins are still a very real danger. And unless we exercise self-discipline and self-control, every single one of us, I speak for myself, is incredibly vulnerable. But Paul finishes this, this kind of eye-opening section, and I'm done, with a word of hope. With a word of hope to all those who face testing and temptation of idolatry and sexual immorality and face the test and the temptation to test the Lord and to complain and to whinge and to grumble. The moral temptations you face, says Paul, are the common lot of all human beings. You're not, you're not alone in this. You're not unique in this. We all face these temptations and tests. But God, says Paul here, is faithful. And he will not allow you to be shut in a room with no exits. You'll not only be able to bear the testing or the temptation, but you will bear up under it. You will prevail. But the question facing Paul is this. Will the Corinthian Christians avail themselves of this God-given way out? Will they avail themselves of it when they need it? Or will they end up running around aimlessly, shadow boxing? And the question facing us this morning is this. In an increasingly pagan atmosphere of a contemporary world and culture that is careering away from God, are we willing to head for the nearest exit which requires self-discipline and self-control or not. God is faithful. Provided a way out. The question is, are we willing 
to take the way out, which requires self-discipline, self-control. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize there, there is a race that has been marked out for us. We recognize that we run this race in the context of so many distractions, of so many things that uh, attract and that try to take our eyes off the prize. And God, as we have reflected on, on the story of this church in Corinth, I pray in many ways this would not be our story. That we would, that we would run in such a way as to get the praise that will last forever. That we would go into strict training, recognizing the need for self-discipline and self-control. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been written down for us so that we can learn, so we can take what has happened and apply it to our own lives. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.